morning. Happy Sunday morning to you, and I'm grateful that it is well with our soul, no matter what condition it may be in, no matter what condition our football team may be in. Amen? Some of us are licking our wounds this morning. Some of you who are just NFL guys and gals, you're going to be licking your wounds tomorrow, and it's just that time of the season, and uh, I was talking to some are celebrating, some, you know, Friday goes before fall, but uh, I was talking with uh, Tim earlier, and it's just, it's good to know that no matter what situation our team may be in, whether we won or lost, whether we look good yesterday or going to look good today or Monday night, I don't know about you, but I slept the same last night. It, it really doesn't matter. I love football. I love my Razorbacks, but they're a big disappointment to me, and I've been doing that for 30 well, 41 years, I guess, probably all of my life, and so I'm just used to it, but uh, I'm, my hope is in the Lord, and it doesn't matter, and so we're just grateful to be here today, grateful to see you, and uh, starting a new uh, series today, and it's an exciting time, and uh, good worship this morning, good reminder that it is well with our soul, no matter whatever situation we may find ourselves in. I want to invite you to take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look there in the first three verses this morning, but as you're finding your place, um, if you were at all attentive over the last couple of weeks, you have heard and seen everything there was to know about Hurricane Doran, who has come now, thankfully, and has gone, and in its wake left a path of destruction over the many of the islands there in the Bahamas. I think I saw this morning where 43 and counting have lost their lives due to this storm. It's been a devastating storm. In fact, even our own coastline, um, the Georgia and the Carolinas are still uh, dealing with flooded and flooded conditions and all the things that go with that. When you think about hurricanes, you think about storms in general, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that today modern technology allows us the ability to fairly accurately predict what these storms are going to do, where they're going to go, and how intense they may actually be. And so it's, it's good that we have this ability, this technology that allows us to forecast the conditions of storms. But I don't know about you, but I kind of laugh at the weather people sometimes. It's the only job, I think I've joked about this before, it's the only job where you can be wrong 50% of the time and still retain a job, right? Now, if we got forecasters here this morning, I love you, and I'm grateful for you, and I watch you every day, but I still think it's funny. And what makes me laugh even more than the, the weathercasters at time is how we react to when we hear those reports. There's going to be a storm coming, and, and all of a sudden, many people will begin to get nervous and, and, and take drastic measures to prepare, and there are times when we need to take drastic measures to prepare, don't get me wrong, and, and I'm grateful for the abilities to forecast and, and the warnings that are issued I mean, think about this. What a blessing it is to know what's coming and to be able to prepare for it. It's a blessing. It's, it's something we should be grateful for. But what makes me laugh in all of this are the responses of people to these. I mean, some point this winter, what's going to happen here in the Richmond metro area is our meteorologists are going to begin to predict that at some point in the next few days, five to eight inches of snow are going to come our way. Here's going to be our response or the response of the majority of the people in our area. They're going to hear that report. They're going to think, my goodness, the apocalypse of snow is coming. And we've got to go to the grocery store and get every loaf of bread, every gallon of milk, and every carton of eggs that that store has, right? Why is it just those three items? 
What are we doing on our snow days? Do we uh, sit around with our kids and our grandkids and we make French toast all day long? Why those three items? If it's me and there's only three items to pick, here's what I'm going to pick. Steak and potatoes and more steak. <laughs> right, Kyle? I'm going for the meat. I'm going for the potatoes because we may be there a while. So I get a kick out of not so much the weather people. I get a kick out of how people respond, especially to the threat of, of snow. But I don't know about you, I'm thankful for weather warnings. In many cases, they are lifesavers. I saw a meme go around this past week. I, I think Steve might have been the one who reposted on some of the social media out there. But here it is on the screen. It says this, the weatherman says the storm is coming. Everybody panics and gets prepared. The preacher says Jesus is coming. Nobody moves. Just let that sink in for a minute. There's something wrong in our hearts and our minds. So today we're beginning a new sermon series working through the book of Revelation. I've simply entitled it this, and it comes out of the first three verses, really verse 3 of chapter 1 of Revelation. It's entitled, Get Ready. See, the Lord Jesus has given us this revelation. He gave it to the Apostle John who's given it to us because there is going to come a day when he will return. There's coming a day that Jesus will return. Did you hear that, church? Somebody's, Heidi's excited this morning. Thank you. So we better get ready, amen? Jesus is coming. So we need to personally be ready. But here's what I want us to see in the book of Revelation. Because sometimes we get all carried out, carried up in, or caught up in this idea of we want to know every little jot and tittle of what's going to happen. We want to know the, the timeline. But we always forget that Jesus says that not even, that only the Father knows. Not even I know when things are going to take place and how they're going to take place necessarily. So we're not going to get caught up in, in all of them details of the timeline. Here's what I want us to see overarching in this series. Jesus is returning, and so it ought to foster me in my holiness, in my walk with Jesus, and in my evangelism, because the time is ticking, and the time is running out for people to come to Christ. As we look at the Bible here, we see not only in Revelation, but really the, the whole of Scripture, that it's moving to a climax, and the climax of history is the return of Jesus. The return of Christ here ushers in this next era of redemptive history. It's like a door, or it's like death. It's a door that opens into eternity. I read a book many years ago by Randy Alcorn. It's called The Edge of Eternity. It's a fictional book. Here's how Randy Alcorn articulates this idea in this book. He says, the roads men choose in the before life lead to infinite joy or infinite misery in the afterlife. To surpassing glory or surpassing tragedy. Everyone you pass on the street will one day be a creature of unimaginable greatness or unimaginable horror. Think about that for a moment. Every person that we see in the streets, every person that you work with, that you go to school with, every person that lives on your street, every person here sitting in this room will one day be a creature of unimaginable greatness with God in heaven or unimaginable horror with the demons of hell suffering for all of eternity. He says it's as if life on this side of the door is the preliminaries and on the other side is the main event. Like this is the tune-up and that's the concert. We live our lives in eternity's lobby, walking toward a door that will forever seal our destiny. Thus the need to get ready. As we ended 2 Timothy just a few weeks ago, we learned there in chapter 4 verse 6 that Paul viewed death for the believer not as a cessation of 
existence. It wasn't that as we come to the end of our lives that we die and we cease to exist, that we're annihilated. No, what Paul describes there, if you remember, in chapter 4, verse 6, is that for the believer, death is a departure. The the word there carries the idea uh, of a ship lifting up its ropes from its moorings and beginning to set sails. The idea of a soldier lifting the stakes out of the ground from his tent to move to the next location. It's a departure. So we as Christians, we will always exist. In fact, all people will exist forever in one of two places. You will exist with God in heaven because you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, or you will exist forever in a place of eternal suffering and and judgment called hell. Every person will eternally exist in one of those two places. And thankfully, this door into eternity has been forecasted for us. That's what we're seeing here in the book that we're going to begin to study. It's been spoken of and predicted this eternal door. The warnings have been issued so that the people have time to prepare for the storm. And so the time to get ready is now. At some point, we need to understand, we need to be reminded that at some point, the day will come, the time will be over, preparation will be ceasing. So the book of Revelation is God's forecaster for us. It's his warning to us to get ready. All summer long we've been highlighting and saying, hey, the fall comes, we're starting a new series. When when, when we go back to school, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. I've heard many of you come and say, man, Pastor, I'm excited about this. I hope you will lay things out. And I will lay things out. I will share with you my personal uh, eschatological position and where I think the the, the things are going to go. And I'll tell everyone else how wrong you are. Really what we're going to do is we're going to make a big deal of the fact that Jesus is returning. We'll talk about the, the details and different positions, but really it's about Jesus is returning. So how can I prepare myself and how can I make sure I can take as many people to heaven with me as possible? So we shouldn't be fearful of this book. Here, uh, when we study this, sometimes we get caught up in the, in the details and the symbolism and the difficulties of interpretation. And so sometimes we just throw up our hands and walk away. Sometimes we get a little bit too... Uh, carried up with it. It's kind of like what Winston Churchill used to say about the Soviet Union. He described the Soviet Union as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. For many Christians, the book of Revelation is like that. They, they see it as nothing more than a, a, a very difficult enigma and a mystery that cannot be solved. They're puzzled by its mystifying symbolism, the striking imagery, and they get caught up in all of that. And, and so what happens is those, those believers, and let's just be honest, sometimes preachers are the same way. We just won't preach this book because it's difficult. I'll just be honest and, and, and transparent with you. I've been pastoring a long time, been in ministry even longer, and this is the first time I will have preached through the book of Revelation. And one of the reasons is because, man, there's a lot of details there, and I'm not sure where I fit in some of that. Um, I grew up in one end times position. I went to seminary and I changed that position because I got smart. I'm just kidding about that. Um, But really, it's not about that. And I've kind of pushed back. Sometimes I believe we just get too caught up in my position over your position. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus will return and I need to personally be ready and I need to make sure others are ready as well. That's why I'm going to continue to emphasize that particular point. And so pastors will will refrain from preaching through this book or from this book at times. In fact, John Calvin, I found this out through my study that John Calvin, perhaps the greatest commentator during the, uh, the Reformation era, 
wrote commentaries on, I believe, every other book of the Bible, 65 other books of the Bible. But the one he did not even attempt to write a commentary on was the book of Revelation. I found that very interesting. The flip side is that some believers get so raptured or caught up in this book, their fascination becomes obsession over the future, and so they mine through the minutia of Revelation, hoping to find some sort of key that's unlocking the code to the future, and they want to put every little dot together and string this together and, and figure out what these images of these bowls of wrath and how it may look today, and so they may come up with these grand schemes and grand ideas, and there's just really nothing more than an obsession that goes no further than I want to know what this means, but it's not moving them to do something in the person's life next to them with the gospel, right? See, when I begin to understand that Jesus is going to come and that those who are not saved will experience the judgments that are depicted in this book, it ought to move me to a place of brokenness and compassion and confession of the gospel to them. So they, very, they miss the very point of revelation in all this. It's not given to the church that we as believers have a detailed timeline of every single thing that is to take place. Though we would like that, right? So just be honest. It would be awesome if Jesus says, I will return X date. Here's what I want you to do until I get there. And, and then we would have this, this pattern, this plan of action. We would know what we need to do. But you know what we would do with all of that? You would wait to the very last moment. Like some of you do, when we have a deadline to sign up for an event, you will call us two days after the sign-up deadline and be like, hey, can we still sign up for that? That's what we would be doing with God's plan with the gospel. So he doesn't give it to us that way. He just says, I'm coming. Here's some, some things you need to be looking for. Here's some markers along the way. Get to preaching the gospel because judgment is coming. Jesus is returning. So it's given to, to, to instruct us, to encourage us. And our faith is given to encourage and instruct the struggling and, and persecuted church then and today. We need to understand that when John received this, he, he was given this message to speak to the people, the believers in his day and time, but also to us today and everyone in between and everyone who will come after us. It was given to remind them that the final victory over evil and the evil one will take place. It's given to encourage faithfulness and holiness within the church in light of the imminent return of Christ. I mean, it, it couples with what Jesus said in some of his parables. That we need to be ready. We need to make sure that we have oil in our lamps. We need to make sure that there's holiness in our life so that we're not ashamed of what Jesus finds when he comes. Revelation calls for readiness. It's a stark reminder that we are to live our Christian lives in light of eternity. Every day that I live, every day that you live, we ought to live knowing that Jesus is returning, that I will give an account of my life, that Jesus is returning, so I need to be strategic and focused and disciplined with what I do with my life today and how it impacts others who are around me, right? We need to get ready. So today, as we begin our journey through this book, I want to do two simple things. Uh, first of all, I want to give you a, a, a synopsis, an overview of Revelation, and then I want to share with you some implications. I mean, how does this imply how I should live my life? How, how should I think about life now because of what I'm hearing and studying in the book of Revelation? So let's look here, Revelation chapter 1, and look at the first three verses this morning. 
Bible says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Join me for prayer. Father, I thank you today that you've spoken to us, you've given us your word, you've given us instructions of how we should live, and Lord, in that instruction, you've told us there's a day you will return. And I pray that as we go through this great book of the Bible, as we walk through these 22 chapters over the next several months, Lord, I pray that you would, you would stir within us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, that you would draw us closer in fellowship with yourself. And Lord, I pray that as we begin to understand more clearly than ever before the reality and the finality of your return and all of the ramifications therein, that it would drive us to our knees in prayer for people. It would drive us on upon our feet as we go to those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the neighbors who are around us and to the nations. Lord, bless your word this morning. Encourage us, teach us, and grow us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's do a quick overview of Revelation. Three things I want to point out here this morning from these three verses. First of all, I want you to see the source of the message. The source of the message. The book here begins with a statement that in a statement of their origin in the transmission of God's revelation that through, it comes through Jesus Christ. We see here that it's through Jesus, through an angel, and it comes to John, who in turn, John writes it down for us. That's the source of the message. It's a four-stage process that he outlines here. He says here that God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to his angel. His angel gave it to John, and John has given it to the church. And so this book is God's word to us. It is his revelation to us. It's not something that's uh, been conjured up by men. It's not something that's been put together by the church. It's not something that came from an outside source. It is from the Lord God himself, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through an angel, through John the Apostle, and now given to us. And so it is John the Apostle who is the writer. It's John the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of James's brother. You probably remember who these two men are. They're referred to as the sons of thunder in the Gospels. He's the author of the fourth Gospel. He's also the author of those three short epistles there uh, toward the end of the New Testament. And so John, the beloved, is the author of this book, the one who received this revelation. Most scholars would date this book Books writing back to somewhere in the maybe mid-90s A.D., somewhere where Emperor Domitian was the emperor at the time of Rome. And the early church generally accepted that this apostle was the author. In fact, Justin Martyr around A.D. 150 and Irenaeus in about 200 A.D. all uh, attested to the fact that John the apostle was the writer, the author of this book. And John tells us, if we were to read further, which we will read next week, that he was on the island of Patmos when he received this revelation. That's the source. It's from God. 
And we need to know that when we think about the, the uh, authority of this book, we think about what the message of this book is, we need to know that it's not something that John conjured up in his own mind, in his own thought, press, thought process as he was there on the island of Patmos. No, God himself was speaking through Jesus, through an angel, to John, and to you and I this morning. This is God's word to us. Secondly, I want you to see the relevance of this message. If this is God's word given to us, how relevant is it for us today? If you look there, it says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, the first couple words here, open up and tell us what this word is. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It simply means to uncover something that is concealed. If we were to follow this word in the New Testament, we would see that it usually has the distinct religious connotation to it, designating a supernatural revelation of divine truth, unknown and incapable of being known by men. In other words, it's God's revealed word to us. In the New Testament, what is revealed is the entire good news about God's redemptive plan. That is, the, it's embodied in Jesus Christ, and this redemptive plan is to be consummated in these eschatological or end-time events which are also revealed to God's people. And so it, it is clear to us that this word is relevant to us because it encapsulates the gospel message and it moves us to think about the end times. Going back to verse 1, it says, it gives a designation of itself or it designates itself as the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's an unveiling of what is to come. Had God not taken, think about this, had God not taken the initiative, the human mind could never have known or understood the real forces at work in the world. Here's what we need to understand this morning. That as we live our lives, as we go about our days, it's not just you and the people around you. There is a cosmic force going on all around us. There are spiritual things happening all the time. I was sitting with our staff this past week, and we were just praying through the needs of our church, and, and there are many needs in our church. We've, we've had families lose, lose loved ones from, from disease, from accidents. There's been all kinds of things. There are other issues going on in the lives and families within our church. There's a lot of things happening. And I just made this statement to our staff. I said, hey, man, here's what I'm seeing. There's a lot of hurting in our church today. Could it be... Because things are beginning to look really, really good for our church and our community. I mean, we're seeing people come to Christ. We're seeing people follow the Lord in baptism. We're seeing a lot of excitement, new faces. There's a lot of really good things happening within our church. Could it be that because God is being blessing, or blessing us in certain ways, that there's an enemy that wants to attack us and distract us and discourage us? So we need to remember that there are things happening, there are forces out there that are beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to see. And so if the book of Revelation wasn't given to us, we would have no understanding of those things. Nor could anyone have known how the end times would turn out. We would just be kind of walking through life, twiddling, not necessarily twiddling our thumbs, but wringing our hands and thinking, I hope this is going to work out for us. I hope that the end is going to be better than the beginning and the middle. But because Revelation and other places of Scripture tell us that when the end does come, I will be victorious because Jesus is victorious. I can be encouraged to walk faithfully with him today, right? And so if we didn't have the book of Revelation and some other pieces of Scripture, parts of Scripture, we would never know how this thing would end out. We couldn't really say it's well with my soul, right? So the book of Revelation is a rich source of truth 
about eschatology. That term simply means the study of end times. In fact, this book contains more details about the end times than any other book of the Bible. It portrays Christ's ultimate triumph over Satan. It depicts the final political setup of the world system. It describes the most powerful dictator in human history, the final Antichrist. We see all of that, and we will see all of that as we work through this book. It also mentions the rapture of the church. It describes the seven-year tribulation, and I believe in a literal seven-year tribulation. It foretells the second coming of Christ, and it gives a glimpse into the millennial reign. All of those things we will look at. We also find in Revelation that it takes a high view of God's inspired word. It claims divine inspiration for itself right here in verse 2. In fact, as we look through the entire book of Revelation, there's 404 verses. And it is, it is believed that 278 of those 404 verses allude to the Old Testament being the inspired word of God. Revelation reveals God the Father in all of His glory, and all of His majesty. It details the depths of man's depravity. I mean, we're going to see uh, in the book of Revelation that man is so depraved that even in the midst of the judgment falling upon him, that he will still curse God and reject Him. That's because of our depravity. Sums up the doctrine of redemption. It warns the church of the dangers of sin and of compromise with the world. Perhaps the book of Revelation is preeminently about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus himself. It describes him with many titles. I don't have time to list all the titles that, that it describes him as, but let me just give you three or four. It talks about him being the firstborn of the dead, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And many others there speak of the glory and the majesty and the deity of who Jesus is. It affirms the full deity of what Paul said there in Colossians 1. That Jesus possesses the full attributes and the prerogatives of God, including sovereignty and eternity, the right to judge men, the authority over life, and everything else in between. Jesus is the one who receives worship in chapter 5, verse 13, and he is the one who rules from God's throne in 22, verses 1 and 3. So Revelation's purpose is to reveal truth. It's not to obscure it. I, I think many times we come to the book of Revelation, we think, man, there's so many symbols here. There's so many images here. And, and we get lost in all of that. And we think God is just trying to confuse us. Why doesn't he give us a clear word? I believe he has given us a clear word. God's purpose is not to obscure, obscure truth. It is to reveal truth. It's not a mysterious and, or incomprehensible book as we may view it. It, it is the last chapter of God's story of redemption. It's telling us how this story will end. I mean, think about for a moment the account of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is pretty clear. It's pretty clearly laid out. There's no vague or obscureness there. God has given us a clear and detailed record of the beginning. I believe He's also given us here a clear and detailed record of the ending. It doesn't make sense for God to speak clearly for, for 65 books from, from Genesis to Jude and then come to the end of the Bible and then begin to muddy the water. It just make, makes no sense whatsoever. God is always revealing truth to us. He wants us to understand what is to come and what that means for our lives. So it brings us to our next point. I want you to see the focus of the message. Look there and... 
middle part of verse 1 tells us the things that must soon take place. And then verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What is the focus of the message? I believe the express purpose of God in giving us the revelation is to show his servants the things that must soon take place. History is not some sort of haphazard sequence. No, history moves on the tracks of God's sovereignty over all things. Everything is moving in a direction, and he's guiding every step of the way. It is a logical and moral necessity arising from the nature of God and the revelation of his purpose in creation as well as in redemption. And so John here writes that the events that constitute the revelation, he says they must soon take place, and he tells us that the time is near. That's interesting. If this book was written down after John received the revelation somewhere in the 90s AD, mid-90s AD, how long has it been since that was written to today? Roughly 2,000 years, right? Give or take a decade or so. And so how do you rationalize that when he says things must soon take place and the time is near? How can we justify all of that. Well, I believe that this, what some may call a contradiction in the delay, is not a contradiction at all. Hermeneutically, I, I see that the best way to understand this expression is in its straightforward sense. Remember that as you study prophecies, you look at the, the way prophecy works and how it's articulated in the scriptures, it's usually, if not always, talking about something that is imminent, something that is going to come or could come at any time. It's not laying out a chronological sequence. That is always a secondary concern when it comes to prophecy. You could go to Luke chapter 18 verse 8 or Romans chapter 16 verse 20 where those, those, those type of phrases are used, but there's no detail specifically of this is when it's going to happen. It's just saying it's coming. So the purpose in giving the revelation was to ready a people for God's return so they would always be ready. It was to give them hope in their struggles and hope in, in their time of weakness, strength in their time of weakness. Revelation here is a beautiful reminder that though the night is long, morning is coming. So throughout our study of this book, we're going to cover God's message of blessing and rebuke to his church. We're going to walk through the dark days of the tribulation, and we're going to watch as Jesus comes in all of his glory, and all of his majesty, and he defeats Satan and his kingdom. See, Revelation is a rich deposit of God's truth. And so what are the implications then that I need to draw upon for my life? Let me give you three implications, and I'll do this a little quicker than, than I did the overview. That's a story of my life, preaching. I get preaching, and I look up there, and I'm like, how in the world? It's like I've been there for five minutes, and it's been 25 minutes. But um, you need to listen quicker. That's what some of my buddies used to always say. Implication number one, Jesus Christ is the exalted sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. When we read the book of Revelation, the implication that we see right off the bat is Jesus Christ is the sovereign, exalted ruler of heaven and earth. What a blessing it is to be reminded of that truth. Amen? I mean, think about what a blessing that is to remember that he is sovereign over all things. There are times in the life of every believer. There's times in the life of every church 
when it feels like the darkness is closing in, like the, like the darkness is taking over. I mean, today in our culture, we may think this at times. We may think that we're losing ground because of all the things that we're seeing change that, that didn't used to be, the freedoms and the things that we got used to enjoy and the pre- prominence that we used to have as a church in a culture that we live in is no more. We may think, wow, evil's overtaking. Satan is on the loose. Satan is, is control of everything. But the book of Revelation reminds me that he is on a leash, and that leash will be jerked at some point. Circumstances can make it seem like, our, like hope is lost, as if evil is conquering, and yet that is not the case at all. Everything around us seems to be spinning out of control. Some even wonder if nature is against us. Well, I'll just tell you right now, nature is against us. If you read Genesis chapter 3, you'll see really, really quick that part of the curse that God pronounced upon Adam was that nature would be against humanity. So, nature's against us. And so this year when those forecasts come of 5 to 8 inches of snow, nature's not going to get out there and shovel that snow. It's going to make us shovel it. It's against us. Hurricanes happen. Tornadoes happen. Earthquakes. Volcanoes. All sorts of natural disasters take place. Not because of something we may or may not be doing, it is because of sin and the curse of God upon this world. Let's just remember that, okay? In this world of, uh, uh, of, of environmentalism, all those things, let's always, as the people of God, go back to what the Word of God says. And perhaps God is using some of that as a curse against us, but it all goes back to sin. But in that, Jesus is still Lord. So nature's against us. Culture is against us. Morality is diminishing around us in our nation. The church may look like it's struggling today. I, I read things all the time, different studies here and there. And what we're seeing in, in church growth uh, studies is that we don't grow as a church as we once did. There was a time 50 years ago that we could say, man, we're doing this big event and the community would come. Today we, see, we say we're doing this event and no one even hears that we said that, right? Culture's changing has changed. Morality is diminishing. And yet through it all, Jesus is still, still the exalted, sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And so we would do well to remember that. This leads us to a second impl- implication. Evil and the evil one will be conquered by the blood of the Lamb, and the people of God will experience the blessing of God. John here in in the Revelation pronounces a blessing on the person who reads this prophecy. That's what he says in verse 3. If you will read this, if you will hear this, and if you will keep this, you will be blessed. So he pronounces this blessing upon those who will do it. What's the blessing that he's talking about? I believe in part the blessing comes to the reader and the hearer and the keeper is that the fact that the knowledge of God has not The knowledge that God has not abandoned him or her. See, when we read this, we understand that God has not left me by myself. That the promise of Scripture that God will never leave you nor forsake you is still true, no matter what my circumstances may say. I believe the blessing is also the knowledge that God is in control of everything. The things that are beyond our control. And even those things that we think we're in control of. We're reminded that God is the one who's in control. The blessing is the reality of a coming day when evil and the evil one will be judged and sentenced. I I don't know about you this morning, but you ought to, and I know I do. I rejoice in the fact there's coming a day that sin will no longer have authority over my life. 
sin will no longer have a hold on my life. That I will no longer have to fight against it and, and kick against it. I will no longer have to focus on it and, and rid myself of it because Jesus will have victory, final victory over evil and the evil one. The blessing is the final victory that Jesus gives us through his death and resurrection. Because what he did there on the cross and what he did there in the tomb means that death, hell, and the grave will be done away with at some point. The blessing is experienced in life, free of sin in the presence of God for all of eternity. And so that is the reason we persevere unto the end. Brings us to a third implication that we need to recognize. Get ready, church, because Jesus is returning. We need to get ready because Jesus is returning. Again, John says the time is near. The call here is to live in light of eternity. It's nearing, it's coming. In Revelation, the word here appears only two times. It appears here and then again in chapter 22, verse 10. And in each case, it is coupled, the, the word near is coupled with the, with the Greek term kairos, which we translate time, it's coupled to it, and each of these is at the critical places of the revelation. Kairos, we, it's translated time here, the time is near, doesn't simply mean or doesn't refer to time on a clock or a calendar. It speaks of seasons, it speaks of eras, it speaks of ages. It, in other words, what John is telling us here through the revelation is that the season of Christ's return is nearing. It's coming so these two uses of this phrase, what they do is they book in the revelation with the warning of the imminent return of Christ. It could come today. The message is that the season of the Lord's return, in other words, is at hand. It's at hand. I remember when I was a boy in Arkansas and um, told somebody in our office the other day that when I was a kid, my sister and I stayed home alone, I guess probably after the age of 11 or 12, somewhere in that neighborhood. My parents were good parents, so they didn't leave us at six and throw some food out on the floor with some water and be like, oh, we'll be back in eight hours. That's not the way it was. But, you know, we're at fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere in that neighborhood and seventh grade. And um, so we would stay home a lot during the summer, and, and things happen, of course. And um, if you did something wrong or you broke something, you tried to clean it up. Or if you had chores, you knew that you needed to get that done before mom and dad came. But you always feared, even though you knew that, yeah, dad or mom gets off at X, day, X time of the day, five, six, whatever it was, uh, you knew that something could happen, they could come home at any minute, right? The imminent return of mom or dad. And so it sometimes pushed us to make sure that we did what we're supposed to do because they could come at any moment, even though we knew that they probably would come later. Here's John speaking to us saying, hey, get ready because Jesus is coming. So we find in Revelation that the focus is not just on eschatology, it's on ethics. It's on how we live our lives. In other words, in light of the fact that the time is near, we are called to live decisively and completely for God. The nearing of His return should influence us spiritually as we remain alert of His coming. And the nearing of Christ should influence us morally as we seek to be holy because, again, He is coming. And the nearing of Christ should influence us evangelistically as we strive to take as many people with, with us to heaven as we can because he is coming. Get ready, church. Jesus is returning. Today's 
Meteorology has incredible technology that enables us to forecast weather events. Though we may scoff at them at times because they get it wrong, it is amazing what they can do. Satellite imagery, radars, I mean the fact that they can take a plane and fly it into the center of a hurricane and, and pick up wind speeds and take pictures and, 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 the, and the, even from the space station can, can photograph and view what things are happening, what they look like down here on earth and begin to document and log and, and study and traject how that thing's going to move and the intensity and all of the things that go into predicting the weather. We can literally watch a storm form. We can track its movement and calculate its strength. And so these tools make it possible to warn people, right? Even when it comes to earthquakes, many times we can, we're beginning in technology to be able to forecast uh, where the tremors are and how they're going to intensify or may produce a major earthquake at some point. And so what they do is they lead us to begin to warn the people and to prepare them, to get them ready for the storm or the event. It's a blessing to know what's coming. It's a blessing to be able to prepare for it. And thankfully, God has given us a similar forecaster in the book of Revelation and in his word. It's given for our instruction. It's given for our encouragement. It's a warning for all of us to get ready. The time to prepare is today. The time to prepare is not tomorrow. I love what the Bible says. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Today is the day. Today is the day we need to share the gospel with our family member. Today is the day that we need to, to love our neighbor in the name of Jesus. Today is the day that we need to prepare to take the gospel to the nations. Today is the day, sitting in this room, if you've never come to a place of putting your faith in Jesus, today is the day of salvation for you. So how do we prepare? How do we get ready? We need to hear the Bible's headlines. Blessed is the one who reads aloud this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What are the Bible's headlines? Three things that I share with you every Sunday. Good news, bad news, and best news. Good news is, is this. God designed you perfectly to relate with him. He loves you. He created you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be in fellowship with you. He wants his best for your life. He wants you to have a beautiful marriage, a wonderful marriage, a wonderful family. He wants to bless you in, in numerous ways. He wants his design for your life. His design is holy. It's perfect. The bad news that we see in the Bible is that sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, has broken and marred his design for your life. You are sinful and you are broken. You and I possess the sinful nature of the <coughs> first man or woman, Adam and Eve. That nature has been passed down from generation to generation. That nature, that sin nature, the Bible tells us, separates us from the God who created us for himself. Today we sin because it's our nature. We choose to rebel against God because it is our nature. We are out of fellowship with God because it is our sinful, rebellious nature. But the best news is, is the Bible declares that God has done everything necessary to pay the penalty, the penalty for your sin, the take care of the judgment for your sin. In fact, I love Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his love toward us, even that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. We say, what did he die for? Why did he have to die? Because someone had to die for sin. We're either going to die and pay the penalty for our sin ourselves, or Jesus, the Son of God, can do it for us. That's the best news of all, is that God loved you so much that he gave himself for you. So what do you do? You say yes to Jesus. Say no to sin, you repent of your sin, you turn from it, and you begin to turn to Jesus. And then you get to experience all of the blessings 
that we've talked about this morning. That God is with you, that God is for you, that God is providing for you, God is protecting you, and ultimately you will get to spend all of eternity with the God you were created for. That's good news. That's the best news. And so many of you have placed your faith in Jesus in this room. Perhaps some of you haven't today. We're going to move into a time of response, Nick, and our team's going to come, and we're going to sing a song. During this time, here's the invitation for you. If you this morning begin to realize that there's not been a time in your life when you have knowingly and willingly said yes to Jesus, confessing your sin, asking you, him to forgive you of that sin, and trusted in him for salvation, today is the day of salvation for you. I want to invite you to come. One of our encouragers will, will meet you down here at the front. They'll take you out, walk through the gospel message with you, and help you put your faith in Jesus today. Perhaps as a follower of Jesus, you're just, you, you want a prayer. Maybe you need to come down here at the altar and just get on your knees. Maybe you need to grab someone, have them come with you. And you just want to need prayer today. You want to ask God to encourage you and strengthen you. Whatever it is in your life, the altar is open for you this morning. Some may need to say, you know, I've been visiting here for a while. It's time for me to put some roots down in this church. I want to know what it means to join Red Lane Baptist Church. When you come this morning, we'll get you with one of our encouragers. We'll begin that process of joining this fellowship. And you joining our team as we take the gospel to people here, people in our country, people around the world. Father, this morning, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for uh, its power. Paul said it's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes. Father, I pray that it's the power of God for salvation today in our lives. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us. God, I pray you give boldness to those who need to respond in faith this morning. God, help us all as believers to be encouraged to take this message, to live it out in our circles of influence. Bless us this morning. Bless this time of response. In Jesus' name.